Welcome to part two of chapter two. I apologize for having to abruptly uh, cut off that last first part. That was not intentional. I had people come over right as I started um, going over cell membranes. So I'm just going to start from how uh, cell membranes are crossed and where we left off of from. So we were talking about how cells have to regulate the traveling of substances across the cell membrane and um, there's three types of transport across the cell membrane, and that's simple diffusion, facilitated transport, and active transport. So I believe in the first part, we just finished talking about simple diffusion and osmosis, um, which leaves us at the second type of um, uh, way that we can transport things across the cell membrane, which is by facilitated transport. So with facilitated transport, um, there's integral proteins that allow larger hydrophobic molecules to cross the cell membrane. Uh, these proteins can be uniporters, meaning um, there's a single substance going in a single direction. They can be symporters, which is two, sum two substances um, in going in the same direction. Or they can be antiporters, which is two substances going in opposite directions. Uh, also, they can be classified as channel proteins and carrier proteins. So uh, when it comes to channel proteins, it's an open tunnel that faces both sides of the bilayer. Um, and carrier proteins uh, bind to the molecule on one side and, change the sh and it changes the shape to bring it to the other side. Um, another type of facilitated transport is uh, passive diffusion, which is performed by channel proteins and it brings molecules down their concentration gradient without energy use. So it's similar to simple diffusion but a protein channel is used so that's why it's facilitated because we need that channel to facilitate the diffusion. Um, and examples include porins for hydrophilic molecules and ion channels for ions. Now the third type of, uh, the third type of um, transport, excuse me, is active transport, and that's where substances travel against their concentration gradient and require the consumption of energy by carrier proteins. Primary active transport uses ATP hydrolysis to pump molecules against their concentration gradient. For example, the sodium-potassium pump establishes membrane potential. Um, and remember that with the sodium-potassium pump, it's two potassium in and three sodium out. All right, so secondary active transport uses free energy released when other molecules flow down their concentration gradient to pump the molecule of interest across the membrane. Cytosis refers to the bulk transport of large hydrophilic molecules within the cytoplasm and requires energy. Endocytosis involves the cell membrane wrapping around a extracellular substance, internalizing it into the cell via vesicle or vacuole. So I'm going to list and talk about a few different forms of endocytosis. So we have phagocytosis, which literally means cell eating. So it's cellular eating around solid objects. And then there's pinocytosis, which means cell drinking. And um, it's cellular drinking around dissolved materials, liquids specifically. Um, there's also receptor-mediated endocytosis, which requires the binding of dissolved molecules to peripheral membrane receptor proteins, which initiates endocytosis. Now, exocytosis is the opposite of endocytosis, um, releasing material to the extracellular environment through vesicle secretion. 
Okay, now let's jump into organelles. So this is, again, a very important high-yield topic. So organelles are cellular compartments enclosed by phospholipid bilayers. Um, they are located within the cytosol and together make up the cytoplasm. So the cytoplasm is the cytosol plus organelles. Only eukaryotic cells contain membrane-bound organelles. This is very important to highlight. Um, prokaryotes do not, but they do have other adaptations such as keeping their genetic material in a region called the nucleoid. And we're going to talk more about that in later chapters. Uh, the nucleus primarily functions to protect and house DNA. DNA replication and transcription occurs in the nucleus. And remember, our transcription is when we go from DNA to mRNA. Again, we'll talk more in detail about trans transcription and translation later on. And um, so let's talk about parts of the nucleus. So the nucleoplasm is the cytoplasm of the nucleus. The nuclear envelope is the membrane of the nucleus. It contains two phospholipid bilayers, one inner and one outer, with a perinuclear space in the middle. Nuclear pores are holes in the nuclear envelope that allow molecules to travel in and out of the nucleus. The nuclear lamina provide structural support to the nucleus as well as regulating DNA and cell division. The nucleolus is a dense area that is responsible for making rRNA and producing ribosomal subunits, which are rRNA plus proteins. Ribosomes are not organelles, but work as small factories that carry out translation, which is when we go from mRNA to protein, um, and they're composed of ribosomal subunits. So if you get a question about which one of these is not an organelle, if you see ribosomes, know that ribosomes are technically not organelles, which that can be tricky because I remember seeing a question where it asked what organelle do both prokaryotes and eukaryotes had, and the answer was ribosomes um, because both prokaryotes and eukaryotes do have them, but again, it, it can kind of trip you up, so you have to just know, I guess, the context of the question and go off of that, but anyways... So eukaryotic ribosomal units are composed of a 60S and a 40S piece, and they assemble in the nucleoplasm and form the complete ribosome in the cytosol, which is 80S. So 60S and 40S make 80S. So the way I remember that is I just remember 468, four, and I remember 46 are the subunits, and then 8 is the complete. Um, and in prokaryotes, the ribosomal subunits are 50S and 30S, and then they assemble in the nucleoid. So highlight that. In the prokaryotic system, it is assembly occurs in the nucleoid, whereas in the eukaryotic, it occurs in the nucleoplasm. So anyway, with the prokaryotic ribosomal subunits, it's 50S and 30S, and then they form the complete ribosome in the cytosol, and it's 70S. So it's 3, 5, 7. Again, it's going up by 2. So just like with eukaryotes, we had the 4, 6, 8. Now it's 30, 50, and then the complete one's 60. So I guess you just remember that it goes up by 2s. I don't know if that is a helpful way to remember it, but works for me. Um, okay, so, and uh, free-floating ribosomes make proteins that function in the cytosol, while ribosomes embedded in the rough endoplasmic reticulum make proteins that are sent out of the cell or to the cell membrane. The rough ER is continuous with the outer membrane of the nuclear envelope, and it's rough because it is embedded with ribosomes. Proteins synthesized by the embedded ribosomes are sent into the lumen, which is the inside of the rough ER, for modifications, um, aka glyco glycosylation. You might see uh, the modifications named as that. 
Anyways, afterwards, they're sent out of the cell or become part of the cell membrane. The smooth ER is not continuous with other membranes. Its main function is to synthesize lipids and produce steroid hormo hormones and also to detoxify cells. The Golgi apparatus is made up of cisternae, which are flattened sacs, and modify and package substances. Vesicles come from the ER and reach the cis face, which is the side closest to the endoplasmic reticulum of the Golgi apparatus. Vesicles leave the Golgi from the trans face. So they come from the cis face and they leave from the trans face, which is the side closest to the cell membrane. Lysosomes are membrane-bound organelles that break down substances by hydrolysis, um, and they break down substances taken in through endocytosis. Lysosomes contain acidic digestive enzymes that function at a low pH. They also carry out autophagy, which is the breakdown of the cell's own machinery for recycling, and apoptosis, which is programmed cell death. All right, now let's talk a little bit about vacuoles. So there's transport vacuoles, there's food vacuoles, there's central vacuoles, there's storage vacuoles, there's contractile vacuoles. Vacuoles galore. So transport vacuoles, um, they're tr they transport materials between organelles. Food vacuoles uh, temporarily hold endocytosed food and later fuse with lysosomes. Central vacuoles um, are very large in plants and have a specialized membrane called the tonoplast, and that helps maintain cell uh, rigidity by ex exerting turgor. And they function in storage and material breakdown. Next, storage vacuoles store starches, pigments, and toxic substances. And contractile vacuoles are found in single-celled organisms and work to actively pump out any excess water. The endomembrane system is a group of organelles and membranes that work together to modify, package, and transport proteins and lipids that are entering or exiting a cell. It includes the nucleus, the rough and smooth ERs, Golgi apparatus, lysosomes, vacuoles, and cell membrane. Peroxisomes perform hydrolysis and break down stored fatty acids and help with detox. These processes generate hydrogen peroxide, which is toxic since it can produce reactive oxygen species. Um, and these react reactive oxygen species damage cells through free radicals. And uh, peroxisomes contain the enzyme called catalase, which quickly breaks down this hydrogen peroxide into water and oxygen. Mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell, the mitochondria. <laughs> uh, so we all probably know about this one. This is an important organelle, of course, and the one that's the most well-known probably. So it's the powerhouse of the cell, produces ATP for energy, used through cellular respiration, which we will talk about in chapter 3 in more detail. Uh, we'll talk about glycolysis and all that fun stuff. Um, all right, chloroplasts are found in plants and some protists. They carry out photosynthesis. Okay, so this is an important thing to highlight. Note that chloroplasts are found in plants and also in some protists. Cool. Centrosomes are organelles found in animal cells containing a pair of centrioles. They act as microtubule organizing centers, um, abbreviated sometimes to MTOCs, during cell division, and we'll touch more on that in Chapter 5. Uh, cytoskeleton. Let's talk about the cytoskeleton. So the cytoskeleton provides structure and function within the cytoplasm. Microfilaments are the smallest and are composed of a double helix of two actin filaments. They are mainly involved in cell movement and can quickly assemble and disassemble. And here, so some of their functions are uh, cyclosis, which is cytoplasmic streaming, 
aka the stirring of the cytoplasm. Organelles and vesicles travel on microfilament tracks. Second is cleavage furrow, which is where during cell division the actin microfilaments form contractile rings that split the cell. Third is muscle contraction, which is where actin microfilaments have directionality, allowing my myosin motor proteins to pull on them for muscle contraction. Intermediate filaments are between microfilaments and microtubules in size. They are more stable than microfilaments and mainly help with structural support. Uh, for example, keratin is an important intermediate uh, filament protein in skin, hair, and nails, and lamins are a type of intermediate filament which helps make up the nuclear lamina, uh, which is a network of fibrous intermediate filaments which support the nucleus. Microtubules are the largest in size and give structural integrity to cells. They are hollow and have walls made of tubulin protein dimers. Microtubules also have functions in cell division, cilia, and flagella. And um, so those MTOCs that we talked about are present in eukaryotic cells and they organize microtubule extension. Uh, centrioles are hollow cylinders made up of nine triplets of microtubules, so it's a nine times three array. Centrosomes contain a pair of centrioles oriented at 90 degree angles to one another. They replicate during the S phase of the cell cycle so that each daughter cell after cell division has one centrosome. Um, now this is something I would recommend reviewing because you might get a question thrown at you where it asks about a certain phase and how many centrosomes you'd have after which phase of the cell cycle. So during the S phase of the cell cycle, each daughter cell after cell division has one centrosome. Uh, cilia and flagella have nine doublets of microtubules with two singles in the center. So it's a nine plus two array for cilia and flagella, whereas for centrioles, it was a nine times three array. It's definitely another important thing to remember. Um, and as far as cilia and flagella, they're produced by a basal body, which is initially formed by the motor centriole. Okay, let's, let's jump into the EC matrix, a.k.a. the extracellular matrix, which provides uh, mechanical support between cells. So ECM components are proteoglycans, collagen, integrin, fibronectin, laminin, and let's talk a little bit more in depth about all these components. So proteoglycan is a type of glycoprotein that has a high proportion of carbohydrates. Collagen is the most common structural protein, and it's organized into collagen fibrils. So collagen fibrils are fibers of glycosylated collagen secreted by fibroblasts. And just a quick note, fibroblasts are um, they're special because they're the one like connective tissue that can differentiate into pretty much anything else. Like it has a ton of potential to become anything. Uh, not anything, but there's a lot of things that it can become. Okay, integrin. So that's another important component. Integrin is a transmembrane protein that facilitates the extracellular matrix adhesion and signals to cells how to respond to the ECM environment growth. Uh, fibronectin is a protein that connects integrin to ECM and helps with signal transduction. And just as a side note, when I say ECM, I'm just abbreviating uh, extracellular matrix. It's a bit of a tongue twister. And... Um, the laminin behaves similarly to fibronectin. They influence cell differentiation, adhesion, and movement. It's a major component of the basal lamina, which is a layer of the ECM secreted by epithelial cells. Cell walls are, carb are carbohydrate-based structures that act, like that act like a substitute ECM because they provide structural support to cells that either do not have or have a minimal ECM.
They are present in plants, fungi, bacteria, and archaea. So again, cell walls, carb-based, and can be a substitute of ECM. The glycocalyx is a glycolipid glycoprotein coat uh, found mainly on bacterial and animal epithelial cells. It helps with adhesion, protection, and cell recognition. Okay, so here's some cell matrix junctions that connect the ECM to the cytoskeleton. There's focal adhesions and there's hemidesmosomes. So focal adhesions is where ECM connects via integrins to actin microfilaments inside the cell. And hemidesmosomes is where ECM connects via integrins uh, to intermediate filaments inside the cell. So cell-cell junctions um, connect adjacent cells and include tight junctions, desmosomes, adherins, and gap junctions. Um, plant cells also have a few unique cell junctions. They have uh, middle lamina and plasmodesmata. So um, as far as the cell-cell junctions, there's four types, which I listed, and I'm just going to go a tiny bit more into depth on them. So tight junctions, they form watertight seals as... Um, as, as sort of you can deduce from the name. Uh, between cells to ensure substances pass through cells and not between them. Um, desmosomes provide support against mechanical stress and connect neighboring cells via intermediate filaments. Adherent junctions, uh, they're similar in structure and function to desmosomes, but they connect neighboring cells via actin microfilaments um, versus the intermediate ones. Gap junctions allow passage of ions and small molecules between cells. Um, now, with plant cells, we quickly listed middle lamina and plasmodesmata. So middle lamina is a sticky cement. It's similar uh, in function to tight junctions. And plasmodesmata are tunnels with tubes between plant cells. It allows cytosol fluids to freely travel between plant cells. Okay, so now we're going to talk about a bit of uh, we're going to talk a bit about cellular tonicity and cell circulation. So isotonic solutions have the same solute concentration as the cells placed in them. Hypertonic solutions have a higher solute concentration than the cells placed in them, causing water to leave the cell where the cell shrivels in a hypertonic solution, and then a hypotonic solution will have a lower solute concentration than the cells placed in them, causing water to enter the cell so the cell swells up in a hypotonic solution. Uh, lysis is the bursting of a cell when too much water enters, and again, that can be seen in a hypotonic solution. So again, think about the solute. So in a hypertonic solution, we have a higher solute concentration because we're hyper so we have a higher solution concentration whereas in hypotonic we have a lower solute concentration and remember the direction of where the water moves it's always going to try to receive to achieve that balance so think about that that helps a lot where, when is water going to want to leave the cell? In uh, the hypertonic solution, the cell shrivels because the water is leaving. And um, in the hypotonic solution, water is entering. So just think about that, conceptualize that, and that will help you remember. And that pretty much wraps up Chapter 2. In Chapter 3, we're going to cover cellular energy. We'll talk about biothermodynamics, uh, ATP, mitochondria. We'll talk about cell cellular respiration and fermentation and some other fun things that are important for the DAT, the MCAT, and 
your own curiosity, whatever you might be uh, studying for. I wish you the best of luck. Um, and I'll see you guys in, for chapter three. Happy studying!